0: Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson, and today on the show, we're going to talk about Apple. Apple has long been dominant across all forms of technology, from your MacBook to your iPhone. Apple has built this ecosystem of products that just work, and that product design has become increasingly driven by the success of the iPhone. But it wasn't always this way. Before the iPhone, phones used to be kind of dumb. So how did Apple become so dominant in this smartphone category? And how did that dominance completely change mobile gaming? Today on Moonshot, I want to hand you over to James Parkinson. James is a producer here at Lawson Media and host of the excellent podcast series Gameplay. If you haven't heard the show yet, I encourage you to check it out. I'll put a link in the episode show notes, but you can also find it in your favorite podcast app. Gameplay tells narrative stories about video games and the virtual worlds that power culture and community. And today, James is going to bring you a story from that series, looking at how Apple created the iPhone and completely changed the world of mobile games. So here's James Parkinson with Premium versus Freemium.
1: When I think of classic handheld gaming, there's really only one name that comes to mind, and that's Nintendo. Sure, there were others along the way, but Nintendo has always been at the forefront of handheld games, and in a big way. From the Game & Watch to the groundbreaking Game Boy, taking your games with you is a huge part of Nintendo's ethos. So it seemed like a logical step when they looked to take on-the-go gaming to the next level. You may remember the Engage. That was Nokia's attempt at combining a phone with a handheld gaming device to compete with the Game Boy Advance. The Engage was released in 2003 and it was a commercial failure. Nokia discontinued the device after a few years. So maybe that's why Nintendo never followed through with their own plans for the Nintendo Phone. Yes, on June 27, 2006, Nintendo registered a patent in the United States for a, quote, electronic apparatus with game and telephone functions. The designs included A and B buttons, a D-pad and a numeric keypad. Clearly, the Nintendo phone never went into production, but just over a year later, a whole new kind of phone would change mobile gaming forever. I'm James Parkinson. From Lawson Media, this is Gameplay. Stories about video games and the virtual worlds that power culture and community.
2: Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class.
1: On January 9, 2007, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone at the Macworld Conference and Expo during what is now a famous keynote.
2: These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone.
1: Of course, Steve Jobs was right. Like the Mac and iPod before it, the iPhone did change everything. But during that keynote, Jobs could have added a fourth device to his three-things spiel. An, An iPod, iPod. A, a phone. phone an internet Internet communicator, and a handheld game console.
2: Are you getting it?
1: Before the iPhone changed mobile gaming, playing games on your phone just wasn't the best experience, simply because of technology's limitations. That didn't stop Nokia owners from firing up a game of Snake on their train ride to work, but phone games just weren't that great, even as the concept of a smartphone was becoming a thing.
3: I remember attempting to play games on my, I had like a Nextel device (laughs) for a while, like when I was in college, like those uh, walkie-talkie phones, but it was all, it was like playing sort of original Game Boy games, but like, bad.
1: That's Rebecca Saltzman.
3: And I am the co-founder and CEO of Finji, which is a independent development studio and publisher based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The only thing that was really great about those original phones is that you could T9 text. But outside of that, all of the controls were really frustrating. Everything was really clunky. They weren't color for a long time. Nothing worked the way you expected to. I remember trying to play a, you know, some kind of Tetris clone and everything was really laggy. Um, so you just didn't play. Like your only access to a really personal playing experience at this time in handheld form was like either your Game Boy Advance or, depending on the time frame, like the original DS. But it was still like, very much um, strictly a gaming device. I couldn't just like, easily download something, and it was just big. I had to carry it around in my purse. It wasn't something that I just had with me all the time.
1: In the 2000s, mobile phones were increasingly becoming something that people did have with them all the time, hence why Nokia attempted to appeal to gamers with the hybrid Engage. But aside from just not being a great experience, that particular device was also never likely to appeal to anyone beyond gamers.
4: I think I remember paying like, um, I don't know, probably 25 or 30 bucks for like the most remedial sort of like spaceship game on my, uh, I think I had a Nokia 6220. Yeah, you know, like insane to think back to that as me being like, oh man, this is a good value. I got to get this game on on my Nokia, you
1: know. Eli Hodap covered mobile games as the editor-in-chief of the website Touch Arcade for 10 years. He's always had a love of games and mobile technology, having grown up in a rural area, spending long bus rides to and from school playing his Game Boy. That love naturally extended to mobile phones as he got older, always seeking out the latest model, and that included the iPhone. So when
4: the iPhone was announced you know it was it was more or less like predetermined that i was just gonna buy this thing because it was you know the the latest and greatest phone and for whatever reason i was wasting all my money on phones and uh so i just had to stand in line for it you know like i I heard it was gonna be a thing that people were going to be in line at the uh local apple store and i was like well yeah i don't have anything to do i'll go i'll go camp out
1: Initially, the iPhone was a shadow of what it is today. You could browse the internet and check your email, but it didn't have any games or third-party apps.
4: When you look back at the home screen of the iPhone OS 1.0, it's like, holy cow, like, where is everything? Like, what's going on with that? So um, the first year, Apple had like a really sort of like glib kind of outlook on any kind of third-party functionality on the iPhone.
1: This was mostly down to Steve Jobs and his reluctance to open up the iPhone to third-party developers. He feared that malicious software might infect the phone and that low-quality apps would give a bad impression. This led to a lot of jailbreaking, people finding ways to hack the iPhone and load various software, including games.
4: No one really knew yet what to make of the control, uh, inputs that the iPhone actually had because, like, the, as weird as it is to think now, like, the accelerometer and everything else was, like, a brand new thing for people. So there was a lot of the early days of kind of the the jailbreak third party scene where people tried to start making games that were anything more complicated than, like, solitaire or other very, very, very simple, like, touch based things was was developers sort of like awkwardly stumbling around with these um, kind of like third-party APIs that would interact with the accelerometer. I really think if it wasn't for jailbreaking and those initial hackers like showing people that the iPhone can do more, that I think that Apple might have been able to get away at least for a while with, um, you know, satiating people's desires with just, you know, telling them to use web apps and stuff.
1: Steve Jobs eventually gave in to pressure from Apple board members and senior management. And on the 6th of March, 2008, the App Store was announced.
2: So you're a developer and you've just spent two weeks or maybe a little bit longer writing this amazing app. And what is your dream? Your dream is to get it in front of every iPhone user and hopefully they love it and buy it, right? That's not possible today. Well, we're going to solve that problem for every developer, big to small. And the way we're going to do it is what we call the app store.
4: By allowing the the creativity of both indie developers as well as sort of corporate or whatever you want to call them developers. the functionality of the phone you know just like increased exponentially like i remember uh so actually i pulled up my very first receipt from uh the app store launching in uh july of 2008 and the very first thing i bought was tuner internet radio by null river for 5.99 and i remember it like absolutely blowing my mind to an extent that was hard to even un- like describe the fact that I could just like listen to internet radio on my phone.
1: The early days of the App Store was a bizarre time. There were a lot of these gimmick apps because developers were experimenting with the capabilities of this new hardware, like the accelerometer and Apple's multi-touch technology.
4: There was a lot of, um, you know, games and apps and things like that that we're able to generate a lot of downloads and sales, and you know, I'm saying that based on like 2009 standards, obviously not by today's standards, but by just being like weird novelties, you know, like um, like the app uh, Koi Pond, which was just like literally a 3D koi pond on your phone, or um, I think it was called like Eye Beer or something like that, which was just kind of like a, a foamy little like beer display that that you know you could pretend like you were drinking it because it would respond to you tilting your phone and stuff. So. It's it's really crazy to look back at um, you know your if you if you still have your email archives and look at your uh, like iTunes receipts and be like holy cow I paid like seven ninety nine for iBeer <laughs> like
1: what the hell the iPhone was also challenging game design here's Rebecca Saltzman
3: most of the games that were kind of being released people were still putting these like clunky um game pads like virtual game pads on the screen that were taking up a lot of like really valuable real estate you'd sort of have your like weird Nintendo controls on either side of your iPhone on the screens um I understand like looking back now because we were sort of looking at that but it wasn't really using this like really beautiful device that was in front of us because like now you're sitting here well, like duh you just touch the screen Like people were starting to understand sort of the capabilities and the control schematics and the UI for a device like this. Like we had to invent our own new UI for a touchscreen, which is now in everybody's pocket. And it had the ability to show beautiful graphics. It wasn't just like a black and white pixelated screen, which is what kind of the cell phones were before. And the screen was huge at the time. It's laughably small now, but... It was enormous. It was like, like I, I remember holding it for the first time and I was like, this device is amazing.
1: When launching the App Store, Apple obviously wanted to showcase all this power and beauty that the iPhone could deliver, and games are clearly a great way to do that. So Apple partnered with some of the bigger developers to bring some well-known titles to the iPhone.
2: So when Sega and Apple started talking about what games would be great to bring to the iPhone platform, Super Monkey Ball was a natural choice. <laughs> When they told us that we'd only have two weeks to create a full 3D demo of the game, I thought that was impossible. But here it is, thankfully up and running, and it looks awesome. And we were able to do this because we were working with a terrific, flexible, and powerful SDK.
1: That's Ethan Einhorn, presenting at the App Store announcement. And in making use of the accelerometer, Super Monkey Ball was an impressive example from a big name in gaming that set the tone for this new marketplace. But the best thing about the App Store is how it empowered indie developers.
3: Our first game was in 2008. And, like, we ended up ranking. Like, we were a top 10 app.
1: That game was Wordle from Semi-Secret Software, programmed by Eric Johnson with art from Rebecca's husband, Adam. Semi-Secret was the Saltzman's first studio before Finji.
3: And, like, back then it was like, you know, you're making, like, $50,000 in a month. Um, which is like nothing to sneeze at, (laughs) like not to, you know, sort of be derisive about a $50,000 in a month, but the ecosystem and the number of players with the original iPhones, which were sort of early technology mavens compared to now, which is just everywhere. People just have smart devices. The difference in player base is radically different.
1: Yeah, those monthly numbers are impressive. But to Rebecca's point, things were said to get even bigger down the road. And we'll get to that soon. In the beginning, though, the upside for indie developers was Apple's revenue split, which was previously unheard of in the games industry. Here's how Steve Jobs laid it out. Now, developers
2: are going to ask, well, this is great, but what's the deal, right? <laughs> what's the business deal? We think we've got a great business deal for our developers. First of all, the developer picks the price. Pick whatever price you want to sell your app at. When we sell the app through the App Store, the developer gets 70% of the revenues right off the top. We keep 30 to pay for running the App Store. This is the best deal going to distribute applications to mobile platforms.
3: Outside of games, if you're hearing that, you're just like, that seems crazy. That's a really high percentage for a storefront to take. But at the time, that was revolutionary. At that time, most of the sort of console revenue share splits were not in the favor of developers. And they also were very not public. So yeah, that that 70-30 split, knowing that like you would get the majority of your revenue, even if it was only a few dollars, it was sort of worth a shot, especially as an independent developer. You just had to pay your development fee. To like access the ability to self-publish, and then you could quite literally just put up a game.
4: If you were an indie developer that wanted to release a game on, you know, say like the Game Boy or something like that, you needed to have a deal with a publisher typically that worked with Nintendo that could get your game uh, physically created, licensed by Nintendo, and then physically distributed to you know whatever electronic stores are, or game stores exist. Which like, you know, if you're just some guy. That you know has a normal nine to five job as an engineer or something like that. That's just kind of passionate about making games or whatever. The chances of your game being released on the Game Boy was you know close to zero basically. Whereas the App Store came along and Apple basically said like, hey guys, for ninety nine dollars you can become a uh, official licensed Apple developer and then distribute your game on the app store. And you paid Apple a hundred bucks. You were on uh, equal footing on the app store as like Sega and EA and all these other, um, you know, like big giants of the gaming industry that would be those exact people that would be the only ones that have that conduit into having a physical game published somewhere. So that truly, I think if you want to put your finger on like one revolutionary thing, about the iPhone that that potentially mattered the most. It was was opening up that accessibility to everyone.
1: The iPhone and the App Store also arrived at a time when making games was becoming more accessible because developers had more tools at their disposal, like Unity, which had launched in 2005. Flash developers were able to port their games to iOS 2 and a whole new wave of independence emerged. Rebecca says this was kind of like a gold rush, with people believing they could make a game in a week and become a millionaire. That wasn't the reality for everyone, but if you could make a fun and compelling game, yeah, you could certainly do pretty well. And because it was so simple to publish a game and reach millions of people, the 70-30 revenue split was a game changer.
3: Knowing what I do now about sort of what the industry looked like then and the conversations that I was privy to then about just the revenue share and how it's public and everyone just sort of like wide-eyed staring at each other thinking really this is possible and watching that sort of trickle out to everybody else this is all just the way the industry works and it it started with the app store
1: In the first year or so of the App Store, paid or premium games were the norm. After Wordle, Semisecret had another hit in the endless runner, Canabolt.
3: So Cannibal launched in August of 2009, um, like August 30th of 2009. Cannibal started out as a uh, flash game. Adam was doing sort of a game a week challenge, a game jam challenge, which the theme was minimalism, which is if you look up Cannibal, it's sort of why there's the grayscale. And it kind of went viral very, very quickly. And as a response to that, we actually spent three and a half weeks or something. We ported it as quickly as possible over to the iPhone.
1: A lot of games in 2009 were still doing the whole virtual controller overlay on the screen. But Cannibal's simplicity contributed to its appeal.
3: Cannibal is designed to have a single one-button jumping mechanic. So you just tap the screen and the, the guy jumps between the buildings. So it's kind of, we, we just ended up in like the right time, right place. It had this incredible song by Danny Baranowski, who's like gone on to win tons of awards for his music and video games. And we attempted something new, sort of in our marketing, because we knew at that point that if you could rank, if you had enough people buy your game in a single day, um, you would rank in sort of like the top charts. And that was sort of just common knowledge among developers. So getting as many people to sort of buy the game, um, especially launch day, would kind of get it noticed not only by people who buy it, but also sort of Apple editorial, because there's so many games that were coming out even in 2009.
1: Adam Saltzman's approach here is something that probably wouldn't be as effective today, but this was when Twitter was still pretty new. Within Cannibalt, you could send an automatic tweet with your score every time you died. Being an endless runner, that happened quite a bit, so you'd just tap a tweet button, then return to your next run. The tweet would also include a direct link to the game on the app store, and the result? Free marketing.
3: So we ended up I think we topped out at like 11 or something with Cannibalt. And we just sort of stayed there as a like super good arcade game. Um, And it's still even brought up like we were just featured in sort of like arcade classics or yeah, we get featured in arcade classics and we get featured in Endless Runners because that's what Cannibalt created. Like Endless Runners existed before Cannibalt in various forms, but Cannibalt was sort of the first one that became popular sort of before Temple Run.
1: If you were fortunate to own an iPhone in 2009, you were spoiled for choice with some incredible indie games. But in October that year, Apple made a decision that saw a huge shift in the ecosystem of the App Store. After the break, the arrival of microtransactions. When Apple first launched the App Store, developers could submit their app for no charge if they were offering it to consumers for free. Developers set their own price, so if it was free, there were no upfront costs. You typically only saw free apps from companies like big news outlets or large game studios, but most indie games were paid apps. Then in October 2009, Apple announced they were supporting in-app purchases for free apps. A TechCrunch article by Jason Kincaid at the time framed it like this. Quote, this is absolutely huge news for developers and will likely lead to a fundamental shift in the way applications are marketed and priced. It's hard to overstate just how much this will change the App Store. Here's Rebecca Saltzman.
3: There was this thing that was happening in 2009 and then continued on through 2010, 2011, where there was a race to the bottom. You couldn't sell anything for over 99 cents
1: the race to the bottom. So mobile games were costing more and more to make and maintain in order to support new versions of iOS and new devices with different screen sizes and resolutions. And developers are trying to make great games at a sustainable rate and still make a profit from App Store sales. Then they also had to balance that with what customers were willing to pay. When the App Store launched, it wasn't uncommon to see games for four or five bucks and in some cases, 10 or $20. But that got cheaper and cheaper, driving down the average price. Bigger studios could afford to do this, but it put serious pressure on indie developers like Semi-Secret. What followed was the rise of freemium. Free games with in-app purchases.
3: And in-app purchases was sort of like, a, for us as a studio and us as creatives, a pretty hard line in the sand. Um, it's not something we were comfortable with because there's two versions of in-app purchases. There is... I put out a game and I charged you for it, and I am now charging you for just the additional levels that I've created, which is sort of like it's DLC content. So that's like if you're playing Plants vs. Zombies and you wanted to buy the other game modes or whatever, that's legit. Those things took like, you know, six to ten months or whatever of dev time, and you're just paying for a product. Some
1: premium games also had in-app purchases, and you started to see a ton of free games supported by ads as well, but the other version of freemium is where an in-app purchase is either necessary for game progression, or it's just easier to pay a few bucks to progress quicker, rather than grind away for a few more hours. And this is where the ethical argument comes into play, when games exploit behavioural psychology through mechanics like in-game currency and designing inconvenience into the game, all geared towards getting you to spend more money.
5: When in-app purchases came around, and this was fueled by the rise of microtransactions in the gaming world, but in order to access features within the game or to buy custom items, um, you would have to spend X amount of money.
1: That's Gizmodo reporter Joanna Nellius.
5: Um, So for instance, like Candy Crush, they sell... Like different like booster packs, uh, where depending on how much money you spend, you can get X amount of in-game currency, um, special boosters to like make levels easier to pass, and things like that. It's a lot easier for the consumer to get sucked into that sort of model when there's no barrier to entry, like money-wise. So if they play a free-to-play game and they like it a lot. They're playing it a lot, but the developers design it in such a way that, oh, you know, it's easier if you, you know, buy these special power-ups and you can unlock these levels a lot easier. That's going to tempt you. So, all of a sudden, these are all ongoing transactions and the same person, rather than spending $10 on a game, suddenly they can spend 100 In the span of maybe a few weeks and for the developers and consequently for Apple and Google who host these games and other apps on their store, that's just a constant revenue stream for them. Not only are they in-app purchases, but they're revolving transactions. They don't stop because these people keep paying for these items in this game and they keep doing it because they've already invested so much time and money in it.
4: there's just such a distinct difference between the way that you kind of like develop a a free to play game versus the way that you would develop a premium game. Right. So on the premium side of things, uh, developers would basically build games that were like games on other platforms, you know, like game boy and PC and stuff like that, which, which, you know, is to say like games that have a beginning, middle and end and, um, you know, have a story to them maybe. And, um, uh, just sort of have some purpose or narrative curve or something like that that makes it feel like a more traditional kind of like experience, right? And, you know, you eventually beat it and it's over and you move on to the next thing and you had a good time and you tell your friends maybe to check it out or, you know, the game might be updated, add new content and, you know, maybe you'd revisit it and, and check it out there. And then on the uh, freemium side of things, you know, it was like the... um It was a completely different notion in that instead of providing you kind of like, and I don't want to, I don't mean to make it sound like, you know, these games weren't a good value because like certainly if people are paying money for a known entity on these games, you know, like, you know, to them, that's a good value. Right. But like they, they introduce the concept of kind of like unlimited spending potential which, you know, obviously is not a thing in premium games. And since they want you to keep spending instead of mobile games where, you know, you download it and beat it and, or, you know, play it until you get bored of it or whatever else, they kind of shifted to like compulsion loop based gameplay and appointment gameplay. in that like, you play a little bit every day and kind of like get your fill for the day or, or pay to keep playing in some cases with, with games with energy systems and, um, It was just a completely different vibe between kind of releasing games that kind of sort of felt like completed projects from version 1.0 a lot of the times to games that were kind of run as a service. Although, like, you know, it would take a few years before the evolution of that would, you know, kind of reach its pinnacle where games as a service really honestly became a thing.
1: By about 2012, games as a service had pretty much taken over the App Store which is essentially any game that has some sort of continuous monetization built in. Not every game using the freemium model employs those questionable game mechanics, but many of them do. What started as a great platform for indie developers quickly turned into a marketplace dominated by freemium. It also led to a flight of poor quality games, including a lot of clones. The biggest freemium games, think Candy Crush, Clash of Clans or Pokemon Go, bring in millions of dollars every month. And the interesting thing is, most people don't actually spend much money in these games. It's the so-called whales, a small percentage of players who spend more money on in-game purchases than anyone else. The evolution of the App Store has had a profound impact on independent developers. Of course, premium games still exist, but they're greatly outnumbered, and it's harder than ever to break through and find an audience on the App Store, or even Google Play, which has seen a similar trajectory. Over the years, many indie studios just couldn't keep up with the way the mobile games industry was moving. Some didn't want to compromise their games with ads or in-app purchases, and many smaller creators couldn't afford the increasing maintenance costs to keep their games online and compatible with every new Apple device and software update. Many great indie titles were almost lost to history because of this, and it's a problem that Game Club is trying to solve. Eli Hodap is now Game Club's Vice President of Business Development.
4: It's a subscription service that costs 5 bucks a month and gives you unlimited access to all these games that don't have um, in-app purchases or ads or any of that stuff. You just pay like you pay for Spotify or Netflix or whatever, and you can play games um, to an unlimited capacity. Uh, you can share your Game Club account with, uh, you know, your your family and loved ones and stuff like that and have those kind of, like, really classic shared experiences, like you might pass a cartridge around back in the day.
1: Game Club has revived a stack of classic indie mobile games. And now they're also porting some much-loved PC games to mobile devices. There's a subscription service for almost everything these days, and there's the possibility of fatigue that comes with that. But for games, in many respects, I think subscriptions make a lot of sense, especially if they're able to offer a better platform for independent studios. And in 2019, Apple made their own play for this space with Apple Arcade.
3: Competing with free is hard. So these games haven't been as successful for developers, and they haven't been as easy to find for players. We think we've come up with a great new way to bring more of these amazing games to more people than ever before. We are working with some of the most creative game developers in the world on a new kind of service designed specifically for games like these. A service that is giving them the freedom to do the best work of their lives. We call it Apple Arcade.
1: That was Anne Tai speaking at Apple's September 2019 keynote. And one of the games featured in that presentation was Overland from Finji. Here's Rebecca.
3: So one of the early things that like why we were so interested in arcade, um, because we brought Overland to it, is when we were developing Overland, Overland is a PC game. It is a game designed to be played on your on your computer, but it is also a game designed to be played on your consoles. And those are just beefy computers. Um, We wouldn't have been able to bring Overland to a mobile device like three years ago. It just wouldn't run. Like the power in the devices just hadn't gotten up to snuff. We would have had to like down res everything. We'd probably have to cut out half of the – like our shader work would have to be redone. Our particle effects would have to be redone. Like It just wouldn't run. So when Arcade came about and we were sort of interested in it with Overland specifically – It was finally at a point where sort of like the technology had caught up in a ways. That's not to say it was super easy. It was actually really, really hard. It was interesting sort of in early talks with a lot of the sort of people around Arcade, how interested they were in bringing really beautiful games to a bigger audience and how could they make that possible, which aligned very, very closely with sort of just mine and Adam's desire of taking our games to an audience that maybe doesn't play games.
1: With no ads and no in-app purchases, Apple Arcade sounds like a good deal, especially if you're someone who's not a fan of freemium and free-to-play. But Joanna Nelius is sceptical about whether Arcade is actually solving the problems created by the dominance of freemium.
5: I don't really think it's Apple trying to bring back quality and control with the subscription service. For Apple, I think it's just more about like having their own thing and gaming subscription services in general have, from my talks with developers, my understanding is those things have been kind of met with a few raised eyebrows just because there's a whole question of like, okay, well, how are you, you know, how are the developers getting paid? I've asked Apple before what their payment model is for developers and I did not receive an answer. So yeah, I just see it more as Apple just wants to try to get into gaming, but gaming's moving in a a completely different direction than Apple's whole, you know, ecosystem philosophy.
1: I asked Rebecca Saltzman about the Apple Arcade payment model for developers, and unsurprisingly, she declined to comment. With iOS devices and the App Store, Apple helped create a whole new arm of the games industry. Even with Google Play and Android devices contributing to the overall mobile games business, Apple's role was key to its incredible growth. And through it all, Apple's maintained its walled garden approach, and that's now causing friction with the way the industry is evolving
5: everything that they do with their app store and apple arcade they're so focused on making sure that what they provide to their customers on their platform is safe for them to use and to play but the direction that gaming is going in in general and granted it's moving very slowly in this direction but it's moving towards an open ecosystem
1: meaning a system that allows for things like cross-platform play, gives users the ability to install whatever software they choose and process payments directly through developers. In the middle of producing this story, in August of 2020, Apple removed Fortnite from the App Store for violating its terms of service. Epic Games had launched a new way for players to pay for Fortnite's in-game currency by purchasing directly from Epic, along with a 20% discount, which wasn't offered to those paying through the App Store or Google Play. This allowed Epic Games to circumvent Apple and Google's 30% cut of every in-game transaction, which led to Fortnite being pulled and prompting Epic to sue both companies. Here's the reaction from CBC News.
0: Now the makers of the game are going to court, taking on Apple and Google, calling them behemoths that block competition and stifle innovation the tech giants fired back, removing Fortnite from their app stores, making updates unavailable on iPhones and Android devices.
1: Epic also accused the app store of being a monopoly and that Apple had become the very thing that they themselves had once rallied against in the computer industry. Shortly after Fortnite was pulled from the App Store, Epic released a video mocking Apple's iconic 1984 TV commercial, encouraging their fans to quote, join the fight to stop 2020 from becoming 1984. This whole feud has been bubbling away long before Epic Games took legal action, and still won't be resolved at the time of publishing this episode. But that traditional 70-30 revenue split which made the App Store such a hit with developers is central to Epic's stance here, because the money that 30% generates for Apple now far outweighs those earlier years. Epic Games and many others feel it's just too much, and the whole fight demonstrates Apple's dominance of the ecosystem, and their reluctance to change. Here's Joanna.
5: Fortnite is a perfect example of that because you can use your Fortnite account and play Fortnite on any platform. So you can play on PlayStation, Xbox, PC, and up until very recently on your iPhone, iPad or Mac OS. Um, You can still play, but you just can't get the updates. But cross platform play is something that a lot of gamers have wanted for a while. They want the ability to not only, you know, sign into their account from, pc or console and be able to have access to their character and all the stuff that they've earned or bought but they also want to be able to play with other people on a different platform so if i'm playing fortnite on my pc i want to be able to go play or team up with my friends who are on xbox you know that's kind of been this kind of gaming dream for a while um Naturally, a lot of the big studios um, or companies have been very reluctant to do this because there is still this idea of, like, if we do exclusives, if somebody really wants to buy it, they'll go ahead and just buy, like, our hardware for it, which I think with the... beginnings of cloud gaming that idea is starting to go away so now we're seeing companies like Microsoft who are like you know we have our cloud gaming platform we want you to be able to play the same games either on PC Xbox or on your phone and have access to the same account and your games across the platform granted to do that you have to have like a subscription but that is where it's headed and Microsoft would love if it could include macOS and iOS in that. But because of the App Store policies, Apple automatically counts out any cloud gaming services. So, what Apple is kind of doing then is they are inadvertently locking out their own customers from another market. And not giving them sort of the freedom of choice as, you know, an Android platform would offer.
1: There's a lot of layers to this Apple versus Epic case, and we hope to cover it in full on a future episode once the dust has settled. But will there be a tipping point? Can the wider games industry force Apple to change?
5: Apple's going to fight it tooth and nail. You know, they're going to do what they're going to do. I don't think we're at a tipping point yet, but we're getting there. We're like climbing up their wall garden to get in there and fight with bows and arrows and swords and a whole glorious game of Thrones style, you know, like end of season finale type deal. Um, But Apple is so big. There's still a lot of hesitation, Uh, about poking the bear. (laughs) So I don't see this being a short, easy fight for anybody. Yeah, that's what I'm confident about, at least.
0: Apps have reshaped the way that we work, connect, learn, and play. From day one, the App Store has been a safe and trusted place for users to discover and download apps. It's no wonder that the App Store is now visited by over a half a billion people each week. Now, the most popular category on the App Store is games. In fact, iOS has become the largest gaming platform in the world.
1: Apple never quite expected the App Store to become as big as it has. But its greatest influence is the way the marketplace, along with the iPhone, has brought games to more people. You probably know someone in your life who doesn't consider themselves a gamer, but they found joy and satisfaction through playing games on a device in their pocket.
3: So I have an incredibly good friend in um, Austin, Texas, and she's she was telling me about how she played Candy Crush. And I was like, really? You play Candy Crush on your phone That's you didn't even check your email on your phone this is amazing and she told me that she had played so much Candy Crush that she had beat all the levels and would have to wait for more levels um, because she had played I, I don't know how many thousands of hours because she did not access in-app purchases at all She she said she once spent a dollar and she was so ashamed that she spent a dollar she never did it again and she was insistent at that point. She was insistent that no, she absolutely did not play games. This was a, this was an activity that she did on her phone. Let me assure you that anyone who plays a game on their phone, like my friend did, and I'm going to use the term gamer, even though I think it's a terrible way to describe somebody, but like you are a gamer, you play games, um, and that's what I find really, really fascinating. Is The ability to take games to an audience that doesn't actually think or believe that they are playing games and kind of growing a more diverse and robust audience because of that, providing accessible content to a huge audience.
0: This episode of Moonshot was written and edited and produced by James Parkinson. James is host of our sister podcast series Gameplay, so I encourage you to download it in your favourite podcast app. Moonshot is brought to you by Lawson Media, and it's hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. The theme music you're listening to right now comes from Breakmaster Cylinder, and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Moonshot Pod. You can also visit our website, moonshot.audio. And if you'd like to get an ad-free feed of the podcast, consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com moonshot. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening.